Hello comrades and welcome back to Marxist Voice, the podcast of the IMT in Britain. For this week's episode, we're going to have a talk from the recent Revolution Festival, this time around on the topic of the Soviet economy, how it worked and how it didn't. As communists, we consider the Russian Revolution of 1917 one of the greatest events in human history. For the first time ever, the working class seized power and began the task of constructing a new socialist order. But in conditions of material backwardness, and with the isolation of the Russian Revolution on a world stage, it was clear that there was no chance of building socialism, let alone communism, in these dire conditions. Nevertheless, the Soviet Union stands out in history as the first time that a worker's state took the means of production into its hands and began planning the economy. In this talk, Adam Booth will discuss the laws and dynamics that were at play in the early Soviet economy, explaining the objective forces that propelled the policies of the Bolsheviks and later the Stalinist bureaucrats. Through understanding this, we can see the potential of a modern-day economic plan, as well as a glimpse of what a future communist society would look like. With all that said, let's get started with this week's episode of Marxist Voice, brought to you by the IMT in Britain. Now, on reflection, I think the title of the talk may be a little bit misleading. Um, I hope no one here is expecting a talk about the in-depth mechanics of how a planned economy would work uh, in the hope of maybe obtaining a a future job in the civil service of a future worker's state. Um, In the same way, you'd be quite disappointed, I think, if you read Capital as part of a course on business management. Because if you read Capital, what you see is instead, Marx isn't explaining how businesses work. What he's explaining is uh, looking at capitalism, the development of capitalism, particularly focusing on Britain, where the process was most advanced at his time, and uh, using this analysis to draw out the fundamental economic laws and dynamics of the capitalist system. And what Marx points out is that Every society really can be characterized by its mode of production, each with its own particular economic laws and tendencies. And these are objective forces that govern the motion of society's resources and wealth, including means of production and labor. Wealth under capitalism, he points out, appears as an immense collection of commodities goods and services that are produced for exchange. And this exchange, he points out, takes place on the basis of value. That is to say, the socially necessary labor time contained within such commodities. And it is uh, this, in essence, that is the law of value. The law that operates blindly and anarchically behind the backs of us all, uh, but which in in doing so, regulates the capitalist economy and governs its motion. It determines the allocation of capital across industries and sectors. It allocates uh, the division of labor globally, and it also contributes towards the circulation and the value of money. And the purpose of today's discussion, therefore, is really to apply the same Marxist method of analysis to the Soviet economy and to use this to understand the laws and dynamics of a planned economy, not only so we can make sense of the problems that the Bolsheviks faced and understand also phenomena like the rise of Stalinism, but also to help us understand the task that will face a future workers' state, 
and to hopefully shed some light on the path that we need to take in order to reach the goal of full, genuine communism. Now, firstly, we need to understand the position that Lenin and the Bolsheviks found themselves in 1917. Almost exactly 106 years ago, Lenin ascended to the rostrum of the All-Russian uh, Congress of Soviets, and he said, we shall now proceed to construct the new socialist order. But he said these words in full knowledge that actually the conditions for socialism, for genuine socialism, did not exist in Russia at this time. Trotsky had characterized the, uh, the economy of the Tsarist empire as one of combined and uneven development. In other words, what you had was these islands of modern industry in a sea of backward, primitive agriculture. You had a working class that was numerically and culturally very weak, could barely read and write. And this was surrounded by the vast bulk of the population, which was scattered peasants spread across 20 to 25 million households. By contrast, Marx and Lenin had highlighted how socialism, the lower or initial phase or stage of communism, required a high level of development of the productive forces. Socialism would require advanced technology and industry, large-scale uh, industry, technology, productivity, and educated working class. Only on this basis would workers have the time and the skills and the know-how necessary to control, run, and plan the economy. And such conditions did exist globally. This was shown by the presence of huge multinational monopolies that were already developed at this time, huge capitalist trusts. It was also shown by World War I itself, where vast sections of the economy in the advanced capitalist countries were being planned by the state, albeit for imperialist ends. But in Russia, these conditions didn't exist. What you had were conditions of backwardness, as I said. And as Marx had pointed out, as long as there is scarcity, as long as want is generalized, all the old crap will revive. For another example of this, we can see the social last night. As soon as the food ran out, we rapidly descended into barbarism. <laughs> now, in this respect, Lenin and Trotsky pointed out that, as I say, the conditions for socialism didn't exist. What you had in the Soviet economy was not a socialist economy or a communist one, but a transitional economy between capitalism and socialism. And the task of the economy of the state, the worker state, was to build up the productive forces, to build up to the productive forces, the point where, where money, where the state, where class antagonisms could begin to wither away. And of course, the main task facing the Bolsheviks in this respect was to try and spread the world revolution to the advanced capitalist countries. But we know that this didn't happen. The, the Soviet Union remained isolated, a bureaucracy developed, and this began to strangle the planned economy and the revolution, leading eventually to the USSR's collapse. Now, in this respect, we can say that Russia's economic backwardness was really both the mother of the Russian Revolution and also its gravedigger. The Tsarist Empire had been particularly hit hard by the First World War. You had huge shortages and inflation in the cities, and it was this that led to the outbreak first of the February Revolution, and then obviously the October Revolution in 1917. It meant, however, that the Bolsheviks had taken over in a country that was economically devastated and on really on the verge of breakdown and collapse. And World War was very quickly replaced by the chaos of civil war. 
The immediate task in these conditions wasn't the construction of socialism. It was merely just to prevent this utter collapse in the economy. Certain initial socialist steps were taken, however. The, the, the Soviet government nationalized the banks and implemented a state monopoly over foreign trade. And this was vital for the defense of the young workers' state because you needed the control of finance and foreign trade. But Lenin's plans initially were not that large amounts of industry would be nationalized, as some ultra-lefts in the Bolsheviks were actually demanding at the time. Firstly, he pointed out the workers' state in general was far too weak uh, to be able to plan the economy on a countrywide level. But also in the factories themselves, workers did not have the time and the know-how to run and plan industry for themselves. Instead, therefore, Lenin initially envisaged actually the old managers remaining in charge and the workers would supervise the, the old managers and learn from them how to run industry. At the same time, workers themselves actually saw often workers control in a more syndicalist sense and in, in, in a maybe more cooperative sense in how people talk about cooperatives today. And uh, in some cases, there are even reports that having uh, taken over the factories, they then believed these belonged to them and started selling off assets uh, in order to try and make ends meet. So you see, this is the, the real conditions that the Soviet government faced. And as the civil war and the imperialist aggression intensified, the Soviet go uh, government was actually forced to nationalize more industry than it initially attended. They set up what was known as the Supreme Council of National Economy, or Vizenka in, uh, in Russian. Apologies if I've uh, mangled that to any of our Russian-speaking comrades. They also started to uh, take over uh, and nationalize industries and organize them in trusts known as glavki. And these were the, the, really the first elements of planning within the Soviet economy. But this was all taking place in the years 1918 to 1920, which were known as the period of war communism. And this was really a siege mentality economy. It was an economy of a, of a country under siege. And it was a desperate attempt in this respect to try and channel what scarce resources there were towards military ends, towards military industries and towards the Red Army. The main problem was obviously the lack of food for soldiers and for industrial workers. The government therefore launched a campaign initially against the kulaks, the rich peasants who were, were speculating and hoarding with grain, but there wasn't enough uh, even uh, on this basis to feed uh, the, the workers and soldiers. And so they had to resort to grain requisitioning, which is in other words, compulsory deliveries of grain at fixed prices, which are, in effect were meaningless because money had become worthless through inflation. And all of this meant uh, huge tensions created in the countryside uh, and, and huge tensions between the countryside and the cities, between the peasants and the, the workers' state. And this, this whole war communism period was also accompanied by other extreme measures out of necessity. Vast swathes of industry were being nationalized under tight centralized control in order to keep control of the, the scarce resources there were. There was a reliance on thousands of old czarist officials and experts because the workers didn't have the know-how to run uh, industry in the state. And, uh, and there was also the mobilization of labor like a, a, a resource, like an economic resource using the trade unions. And all of this was necessary to prevent this breakdown in the economy, to, to try and overcome the bottlenecks that were pro proliferating across the economy. But all of this also led to outcries from uh, more ultra-left types within the Bolsheviks, particularly a group known as the so-called workers' opposition. 
And these people couldn't understand why Lenin and the Bolsheviks and the government weren't just going ahead and implementing socialism and workers' control. On the other hand, there was also a layer of ultra-lefts who looked more positively upon some of the more extreme measures associated with war communism. For example, to fund uh, uh, state expenditure in these uh, desperate conditions, the government was resorting to money printing, furiously printing money, which effectively led to, to the ruble becoming completely worthless uh, through inflation. And therefore, the, the economy increasingly began to operate without money, uh, the state started providing free rations and public services like canteens and transport. You had uh, workers being paid in kind. You had uh, private trade being abolished and uh, prices being fixed. And you had uh, nationalized industries actually swapping directly with each other with Vizenka working out the difference and updating the books accordingly. And all of the ultra-lefts, they mistakenly saw this state intervention as somehow a stepping stone towards genuine communism. They saw war communism as, as I say, a stage in the, uh, in the direction of genuine communism. Now, this mistaken view really highlights the importance for us to have a materialist and dialectical understanding of economic laws and how they rise and fall. The law of value and its expression in terms of money and markets is not something that can simply be abolished by decree through price controls or through rationing. All of this only leads to uh, worse shortages and to, to inflation and black markets, as you saw not only in war communism, but in subsequent periods where similar measures were attempted. Such economic laws, at the end of the day, reflect objective pressures which arise for particular material conditions. And to eliminate these pressures, you therefore have to tackle the conditions that have given rise to them in the first place. In the same way, money is a measure of value. It's a, a means of exchange, and it's a tool, therefore, in a, in a system of commodity production exchange. You can't get rid of the tool until it's become obsolete and redundant. And in this, in this uh, case, with widespread scarcity, with, with barter taking place across the economy, it's very clear that the conditions did not exist under war communism for the withering away of commodities, of money, and of the law of value. And in other words, what you saw really was that state ownership and willpower alone are not enough to bring about socialism. This was very much still a transitional economy subject to the laws of capitalism, not socialism or real communism. And all of this was really implicitly recognized in uh, early 1921 with the debates and the turn towards the new economic policy. This was primarily a means of trying to address these political tensions that were developing in the countryside. You had the outbreak of peasant rebellions, most famously Kronstadt. But it was also an attempt to try and rebuild the economy out of the devastation after the, the war years, after the civil war, particularly by getting food to the, uh, the cities and to the industrial workers. And to do this, peasants were no longer compelled to hand over their grain, but were incentivized to produce by allowing them to sell their surplus for a profit. But this first step logically gave rise to a number of other steps that no one fully anticipated in advance. Pulling at this first thread of agriculture, you saw the whole of war communism beginning to unravel. Now, first up, the peasants had to be kept happy by providing them with consumer goods that they could buy with their newly obtained money. 
but heavy industry was destroyed and couldn't provide this. And therefore the government was forced to lean more and more on petty private producers, artisans, things like this, to produce consumer goods for the, for the, the villages. Similarly, private trade uh, needed to be restored in order to distribute these new consumer goods across the country. And this gave rise to a group known as the, the NEPMEN, uh, not a group per se, but uh, you know, hundreds of, and thousands of these traders, middlemen, speculators, and so forth, who were responsible for distribution. And of course, you had the rich peasants, the kulaks, who were benefiting from this, uh, this, this uh, market restoration in the countryside. And all of these layers together, these petty bourgeois layers were nurtured, were strengthened by the NEP, the kulaks, the netmen, the artisans, and so forth. And, uh, and this had political consequences we'll see later. Next up, the currency had to be stabilized. You needed steady prices in a market system. And this meant the government had to slash state spending and stop printing money. But this in turn meant all the state-owned enterprises needed to cut their spending. And so what the government did was introduce a, a policy known as rationalization, which in other words meant that all these enterprises suddenly had to operate on commercial principles, trading on the market, operating their books independently, and uh, cutting costs if they couldn't keep their heads above the water. And what this meant for the workers in those industries was mass sackings. You now had a situation where having previously uh, been guaranteed a job and, and uh, some meager rations at least. Now you had workers facing the market, having to work for a wage and potentially being put uh, on the, the scrap heap of unemployment. In other words, what you saw was very quickly the logic of capitalism spread across the whole economy just after this introduction of the market in agriculture. And what this really highlights to us is how the different parts of any economic system are interconnected. They're not isolated or arbitrary. Just as the different elements of war communism had been bound together, so were the various components of the NEP. In both cases, we had a form of a transitional economy which had not escaped the laws of value. Uh, and uh, in this sense, the law of value in asserted itself not only internally in terms of the black markets and the, uh, and the scarcity and the shortages, but also through external pressures, the pressure of low prices on the world market. And all of this contains, I think, important lessons for us today. Firstly, it's a lesson against the reformists who think you can mix and match different parts of economic systems together, who think that austerity and these sorts of things are ideological. What you had in the NEP is, was effectively austerity and monetarism, not out of ideology, but out of necessity. I think this period is also very uh, instructive to those today in places like Cuba and China who talk about the NEP as somehow a positive way forward uh, in these sorts of countries. Because this is the point, Lenin did not see the NEP as a way forward. But why then, given all these problems, did Lenin and Trotsky and the rest of the Bolsheviks support the introduction of the NEP? They could see these dangers, so why did they support it? Well, Lenin described it as a retreat, not as a way forward, but as a retreat, a necessary retreat, given the stalling of the world revolution uh, in other countries, this, you know, the, the revolution had not spread as they'd anticipated. Therefore, the NEP was really a lifeline. It was a, an attempt to, sorry, buy time until a lifeline could come about through the spread of the world revolution. Now, at the same time, Lenin and Trotsky could see this strengthening of these capitalist elements in, uh, in the Soviet Union that was uh, coming about because of the NEP and also how this was aiding the rise of the bureaucracy at the time. 
And therefore, Lenin, in his, his final struggle, really, and later this struggle was continued by Trotsky and the left opposition, waged a political campaign to try and root out careerism and bureaucracy in the state and in the party. In other words, they were going to make economic concessions to uh, the, 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 the peasantry and the petty bourgeois. They needed to politically strengthen the workers' state. On the other hand, they were also recognizing that they weren't completely victor, uh, you know, completely uh, helpless in the face of the law of value. They had control still over the major levers of the economy, the heavy industries, and obviously the banks and the state monopoly of foreign trade. And what Lenin and Trotsky called for was to use these levers in the hands of the workers' state to try and tilt the balance in favor of workers and of industry and to try and accelerate industrialization, including the collectivization, the incentivized collectivization and modernization, electrification of the uh, agriculture in the countryside. What Trotsky explained is that, yes, the law of value still operated in the Soviet economy, asserting itself through money and markets, uh, but its potency had been blunted by state ownership and control, which effectively imposed a second regulator on the economy in the form of conscious planning and allocation of resources. And it was these competing pressures between the market on one side and between state planning on the other that really represented a key feature in the transitional economy. Now, after Lenin's death in 1924, the NEP continued, and this question of industrialization became one of the main battlegrounds in the struggle between the left opposition and the Stalinist bureaucracy. By 1925-26, the economy had largely recovered to its pre-war levels in terms of industrial and agricultural output, and debate really became now a question of where next, where next for the Soviet economy and its reconstruction. At this point, Stalin was now aligned with Bukharin and the right opposition, and they were calling for socialism in one country, they were calling for a continuation of the NEP, and they were calling for a slow pace of industrialization. Trotsky and the left opposition, on the other hand, were calling for world revolution. They were warning about the political dangers of the NEP in terms of the rising strength of the Kulaks and the Netmen. And they were calling for an ambitious and transformative program of industrialization. Now, these positions weren't just a question of point scoring. It wasn't just arbitrary that one side supported this and one side supported the other. At root, these different stances, these positions, reflected different class pressures and economic forces. You had on the one side, the Stalinists, who were leaning at this point on the petty bourgeois layers for their own interests. On the other side, you had, uh, well, and the petty bourgeois layers in turn, I should add, were obviously looking towards the market. On the other side, you had the left opposition who were basing themselves on the workers' state, strengthening the workers' state and calling for policies that would boost socialist planning and the elements of socialist planning that did exist. And this was also reflected, these differences were reflected also in the different theoretical approaches, or really the lack thereof in the case of uh, Stalin and Bukharin. The Stalinist bureaucracy was, was very pragmatic, if you like. They, they were empirical philosophically. They had no theory as a guide to action, and therefore they constantly, uh, unconsciously adapted themselves to the laws of capitalism. Um, Bukharin, for example, suggested that the Soviet Union uh, could ride into socialism on a peasant nag using the NEP. And he opposed any strategy that would, might lead to any sort of rift with the peasantry in the countryside. 
And this is why the Stalinists had these conservative targets in terms of, uh, in terms of economic growth. It reflected these class pressures and this empirical outlook. Because in order to avoid a rift with the peasantry, they couldn't uh, tax them uh, to try and fund state industry. Instead, they said state industry had to self-finance. But state industry was extremely weak. It could barely produce any surplus. So how was it going to self-finance further investment and growth? And this basically guaranteed, therefore, this self-financing of industry position they put forward. It guaranteed a slow rate of growth and in turn then an, a widening gap between the Soviet economy and the advanced capitalist powers, putting more pressure from uh, the world market onto the Soviet economy. Now, also, Bakarin and Stalin, they were, at this point, as I say, they were slaves to the market. And the logic of the market was, uh, or as the bourgeois call it, comparative advantage, was that the Soviet economy should base itself on low productivity agricultural labor and exports rather than developing industry. This is where they had a comparative advantage, if you like, with an abundance of labor and, and uh, scarce amounts of uh, machinery. And therefore, the logic of the market was not industrialization, but to remain backward and primitive. And taken together, all of, this, all of these pressures meant that further accumulation on the basis of the Stalinist program would not lead to a strengthening of the workers' state and industrialization, but actually a strengthening of the kulaks, the rich peasants, and that would embolden them. And ultimately, Trotsky and his supporters warned, it would lead to the restoration of capitalism, not to industrialization and Russia becoming a modern powerhouse. Now, Trotsky and his supporters say they warned about all of this. And what they called for instead was for the law of value to be combated consciously by a counterfailing, what they called law of socialist prim uh, primitive socialist accumulation. And this was an analogy with Marx's analysis of primitive accumulation under capitalism, which he outlines in Capital. Marx outlines how in the early days of capitalism, when the bourgeois was first coming into being and trying to gather together the resources for its own industrialization, it would, uh, it would get these resources from its colonies, from, uh, from the countryside, from the enclosure of the commons and other policies, and using the, the, the lever, the force of the state to try and extract these resources. And this was where the analogy comes in with primitive socialist accumulation. Trotsky and his supporters were saying what the, the, the worker state needed to do was use the levers at its disposal to get these resources from the non-state sector, from the, particularly the countryside, to fund industrialization. And uh, in other words, what, what they were proposing was, yeah, taxes, tariffs, prices, using the state monopoly of foreign trade, the, the control of the banks and the industries and so forth, in order to enact an unfair exchange. In other words, to oppose the law of value, which would suggest a, a fair exchange. And all of this was the material basis for the left opposition's program of ambitious growth targets and five-year plans, which the Stalinists at this point were denouncing as completely unrealistic. In other words, what Trotsky and the left opposition were saying was that on the one hand, you needed to consciously recognize the law of value and try and combat it. On the other hand, you need to recognize there's another objective necessity facing the Soviet Union if it wants to uh, industrialize, and that requires this program of primitive socialist accumulation all the way up until the point where genuine socialism would be possible. In essence, what Trotsky was saying was there was a battle between the old mode of production and the new society struggling to be born. A struggle that could only be won ultimately through the success and the spread of the world revolution. 
Now, this theoretical debate very quickly became very concrete. Trotsky and the left opposition were expelled in late 1927 by the Stalinists, but their warnings quickly played out with the development of a new grain crisis that winter. What you'd seen in the NEP years was a mass migration, actually, of peasants into the cities to help fuel industrialization. But these people needed to be fed, and that meant extra pressure on food production. And, uh, and food production couldn't keep up on the basis of this scattered, primitive agriculture that existed in the USSR at a time. What was required, Trotsky and the left opposition had pointed out, was to try and incentivize collectivization so that you could modernize and electrify agriculture, uh, and on this basis only could you solve this uh, contradiction of, of feeding the workers in the cities. But what you saw was that Stalin, faced with this contradiction, instead implemented the left opposition's program, but in a completely bureaucratic, caricatured, reactionary manner. He pushed through forced collectivization and called for the liquidation of the kulaks as a class. And this only made the food crisis worse, leading to huge falls in agricultural output and ultimately to millions dying of starvation and disease. Now, having defeated the left opposition, Stalin uh, went and uh, tacked against, uh, turned against the right. He began to admonish Bukharin for adapting himself to bourgeois tendencies, and he abolished the NEP in favor of uh, hyper-ambitious uh, targets in terms of new, uh, a new five-year plan. Now, more right-wing Soviet economists at the time who were more in favor of the market, uh, there was a group known, them, uh, known as the geneticists, and they believed that planning should effectively be like forecasting the weather, you know, just trying to predict uh, kind of organic natural changes, spontaneous changes. On the other side, there was a group known as the teleologists, who uh, believed that the, the role of planning should actually be uh, to try and set targets and goals and then mold, consciously mold industry and society in order to reach these. And it was on this basis that Stalin uh, formed the, the five-year plan. It was a completely subjectivist outlook. In other words, uh, an outlook which believed that planning simply required willpower and determination. And the, uh, the first five-year plan was launched in October 1928 on this basis. We should say, despite all these limitations, these bureaucratic limitations, uh, the five-year plan and its successor brought about huge achievements and advances for the Soviet economy and for Soviet society. Even bourgeois estimates, which are probably quite conservative, suggest that the economy in this period from 1928 to 37 of the, the first two five-year plans grew by around 62 to 72%. And bear in mind, this is in a decade when the advanced capitalist countries are being completely racked by the Great Depression, the biggest crisis in the history of capitalism, which did not affect the Soviet economy. And it was on this basis, because of these advances and achievements, that Trotsky defended the planned economy and defended the Soviet Union, stating in his masterpiece, Revolution Betrayed, with the bourgeois economists, we no longer have anything to quarrel over. Socialism has demonstrated its right to victory, not on the pages of Das Kapital, but in, the, in an industrial arena comprising a sixth part of the Earth's surface, not in the language of dialectics, but in the language of steel, cement, and electricity. Now, I should also add that there were crises in the Soviet economy along the way, as there, in this period, as there were repeatedly 
throughout the decades following until the USSR economy's eventual slowdown and collapse. But these crises weren't like crises of capitalism, uh, which are crises of overproduction. Overproduction is a contradiction arising because of the law of value, because of the nature of profit being the unpaid labor of the working class. It's a, it's a reflection of an overaccumulation of capital. But these were crises of underaccumulation, of scarcity. You didn't have a glut of goods flooding the market. You had empty supermarket shelves. And this arose, as I say, not because of uh, the laws of capitalism, but because of the subjectivist empirical adventurism of the Stalinists and their bureaucratic approach to planning. They set these absurd targets with no basis in reality and then strained and broke the economy in order to meet these. Above all, in, in this respect, the cri these crises were really further evidence that the goal of socialism had not been reached, let alone communism. It was another reminder that the economy was still a transitional one subject to these objective laws and limits. Now, Trotsky observed all of this from exile, both the achievements and the crises of Soviet planning. He defended, as I say, the workers' state as a degenerated workers' state, the Soviet Union as a degenerated workers' state. But he also highlighted how the Stalinist bureaucratic approach was heightening all the contradictions. In the race to meet these arbitrary targets, bureaucrats were sacrificing not only the quality of goods, but in turn also the quantity. Workers were being put under backbreaking strain and stress and conditions in their workplaces and in their daily lives. Bottlenecks, disruptions, distortions, imbalances were proliferating across the economy. The main problem at root was the low level of development of the productive forces arising from the, the, the backwardness and the isolation of the USSR. But all of this was being amplified by the fetter of bureaucracy. And in this respect, Trotsky wrote some very illuminating articles at this time, pointing out that planning is a science. It's a science that has to be understood theoretically. But any science also, he pointed out, has to be tested uh, by checking, in this case, checking plans against reality. And in a transitional economy, uh, Trotsky said, this meant consciously using market forces and price signals to try and identify shortages and pinch points in the economy and guide uh, in direct investment and resources accordingly. In other words, until the conditions existed for money to wither away, he said it would be a tool. The money would be a tool in the hands of the workers' state used for economic calculation, for planning, for bookkeeping and accounting. Under the Stalinists, however, this was impossible. They'd actually returned to the idea of, of inflation and uh, money printing. And as a result, money was useless as an instrument for planning uh, in the so Soviet bureaucratic economy. At the same time, Trotsky pointed out as being a science, planning, he said, is also an art. It's an art that has to be learned and, and, and mastered by the working class through experience. In other words, yes, you need uh, people who are going to calculate. You need economic calculation. You need forecasting prediction. You need the statistics and the, uh, the data. You need the, uh, the calculations of material inputs and outputs and balances and so forth. But you need all of this to be supplemented by the vital oxygen of workers' democracy in order to verify and check these plans against reality. The problem was in the Soviet Union, any remnants of workers' democracy that had remained after war communism and the NEP years was stifled and eventually extinguished by the Stalinist bureaucracy. 
the Soviets, the trade unions, the party, all of these became tools uh, of the bureaucracy and, and vehicles for careerism, not tools for workers' control and planning. Now, in the early years after the revolution, the, the, the potential for workers' control and planning, as I said, was limited by the dire material conditions of the time, by the lack of time and education needed for workers to be actively involved in running the economy and society. Later, thanks to the advances of industry and education under the plan, these material conditions did come about. The problem is, by this point, the grip of the bureaucracy had become suffocating, draining the life out of the planned economy and leading to the eventual restoration of capitalism. Today, however, we can safely say that socialist planning would be far more viable than it ever was in the Soviet Union. The working class is far stronger and more educated. Industry, science, and technology are far more developed. And in fact, we already see immense levels of planning going on inside the big multinational firms like Amazon with the logistics and, and supply chains and so forth. All of that exists already under capitalism, ready to be taken over by the working class when it seizes power. In this respect, you might actually say we can learn more about what socialist planning might look like by studying Walmart than you can from studying the USSR. Nevertheless, we should study the USSR. We should study the Soviet economy. The Bolsheviks showed what is possible. And today we can say on the basis of world revolution, we could quickly pass through the transitional phase in the space of a few years, in, in a single generation. And on that basis, we could create a society of superabundance. We could massively reduce the hours of the working day, allowing workers to fully participate in the running of society. We could boost living standards for everyone. We could solve the problems of the climate crisis, and we could liberate humanity in terms of art and culture. All of this is possible on the basis of planning today with the level of development of the productive forces. And it's on this basis that we, after the world revolution, will be able to raise the red banner high inscribed with Marx's communist motto, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of another episode of Marxist Voice. Thanks very much to our listeners for tuning in. But before we end the episode, we'd like to make a few quick announcements. First of all, if what you heard in Adam's talk has piqued your interest and you'd like to delve deeper into the question of the Soviet economy, then we'd highly recommend getting a copy of the Indefensive Marxism Theoretical magazine. The latest issue carries an article by Adam on this exact topic and it goes into a lot of detail. It's definitely worth a read. So if you'd like to pick up a copy, head to the links in the show notes of this podcast to subscribe to Indefensive Marxism. Now, as I'm sure all of our listeners have heard, members of the IMT in Britain are launching a new political party, the Revolutionary Communist Party, with a founding congress in May 2024. This is going to be a huge campaign for us. Our goal is to have 2,000 well-trained communists here in Britain in time for the storm and stress of a Starmer government. We're going to hit the ground running in January next year with the launch of our brand new paper, The Communist. So if you want to help us build a revolutionary communist leadership, join the international Marxist tendency. If you head to the link in the show notes of this podcast, you'll find our application form. If you fill that in, your nearest branch will be in touch with you as soon as possible, whether you're here in Britain or anywhere in the world. 
In the meantime, why not subscribe to The Communist so you can get your hands on the first issue as soon as it comes out? And better yet, why not also donate to our special party launch fund? We are appealing to all of our listeners, readers and supporters to help us raise £20,000 towards the founding of the Revolutionary Communist Party. So once again, if you'd like to subscribe to The Communist and donate to the special party launch fund, then head to communist.red or head to the link in the show notes of this podcast. So that's it from us. Thanks very much to our listeners once again for tuning in and make sure you stay tuned to Marxist Voice for future episodes covering Marxist theory, revolutionary history and current events. Brought to you by the International Marxist Tendency in Britain.